Jesus' name of Jesus, amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. I also want to just continue to pray for Sister Jack, who is at home recovering, amen. Amen. Her family is assisting with her as well as her dutiful husband, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, Please bless that family as we do when people are recovering, however the Lord directs you to. And if you have questions about how you might be able to be a blessing, just pick up the phone or text Sister Jack. Uh, We are continuing to pray for Brother Tim. Amen. Amen. Deacon Tim, as we are uh, trusting that God is going to return him uh, quickly to us and that he will experience a complete and total healing. Let's do this together. Let's do this together. I can't do this on my own. God has designed us in such a way that without everybody doing their part, we will never become everything that God would have us to be. On January the 15th, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 departed from New York's LaGuardia Airport en route to Charlotte, North Carolina. Three minutes and 56 seconds into the flight, the unthinkable happened. I've shared this before. Both engines were disabled by a double bird strike. The birds collided into both engines, engines, and the impact of those collisions totally disabled the plane. What should have been a one-hour flight became for 155 passengers worst nightmare. The plane was going down. All the passengers could see was the icy waters of the Hudson River. Now, most of you know how the story ended, and in fact, the news media has dubbed this occurrence back in 2009, the miracle on the Hudson. The pilot was able to use his years of experience and expertise to land the plane on the top or the surface of the Hudson River. And while most of the accolades have been directed to the pilot for executing under pressure the type of skills that needed to be used, he deflected the praise to all of the other things that had to happen in order for 155 people to walk away from a plane that crashed into a river and nobody died or even suffered serious injury. He said if the air traffic controller had not contacted the emergency uh, police and the the firemen and and the paramedics, harm would have come to the uh, passengers. He said when the plane landed, if it had not remained intact, the, the plane could have severed in multiple places just on the basis of the impact of the plane coming in contact with the Hudson River. 
And then once the plane settled on the river, the exits had to deploy so that the people could slide out or depart from the plane safely. And if none of that, or if one of those things had failed, many of the passengers, if not all, could have lost their life. But the most important thing that happened on that day, on November the 15th, 2009, is that the passengers worked together. If one passenger had panicked, if one had refused to cooperate, it could have caused everyone on that flight to lose their life. And so the real miracle is that 155 frightened people maintained their cool with less than 31 days left to catch, to fill, to close that gap <laughs> and survived. The miracle was that people worked together under the most diverse circumstances imaginable. How many of you know amazing things can happen when people work together? The Bible is filled with examples of what God does when his people come together on one accord. In fact, in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, the last prayer that Jesus uttered for his disciples before going to the cross, he prayed, Lord, I ask that not only for the disciples that I have led and taught for three years, that they would be one, but I pray that those who they lead to, to, into a saving relationship with me that they too will experience the oneness that you and I have, that they too would work together. And by, where, by their working together, men will know that they belong to me. How can we get to the goal that God has set before us? It will happen if we work together. The Bible says, in our lesson today, we're going to be turning our attention to it today. But the people that we're going to be focusing on were able to accomplish what took their previous generation 40 years. They accomplished it in 24 hours. How could that happen? 24 years, 40 years, people working together accomplished it in one day. I want you to know there's something very powerful about people working together. Somebody say, amen. amen. We see in the passage that I, that I read before you that the, the scripture says that they all crossed over the Jordan River and that they all made it to the other side and until they all got to the other side and the priests who were bearing the ark crossed over to the other side the Jordan River did not, did not return to its normal flooding level. All of them working together made it to the other side. And so the question for me, I believe the scriptures that we're going to be looking at answers is how 
people, how can we work together to accomplish something that is miraculous? How do we work together to accomplish something that is beyond our, our human capabilities? Let me share four things that were true and must be true of us if we are going to do this thing together. Somebody said, let's do it together. In Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, we read, And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you. I will make you great. I will make you great in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. Working together requires humility. Working together requires humility. God said to Joshua, what's about to happen to you? You're about to blow up. But the reason you're going to blow up is because I am going to do it. I am going to do it. Humility pleases God, but pride is at the top of God's hate list. Humility pleases God, but pride is at the top of God's hate list. And you'll see as we break this passage out further, the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the pride, the proud. God gives grace, he gives favor to those who are humble, but he actively stands against the prideful. Humility pleases God, but pride is what God hates. Listen to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. The Bible says, these six things the Lord hates, yet seven are an abomination to him. And here's the first on the list. A proud look, a, con a conceited spirit, that is. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. And so at the top of the list of all the things that God says he hates regarding sin, he says the first it's pride. Every sin, the seed that it is born from is pride. Every, the first sin that was ever committed in the Bible was pride. And every sin that you and I will ever commit, it will be because we have decided we know better than God what is best for us, and that's pride. Pride can be described as an attitude that relies more on your opinion or my opinion and thoughts than the authority of God. It's an attitude. Pride is an attitude that relies on, my, on our opinion and our thoughts more than the authority of God. I want you to know that one of the things that we have learned from the pandemic is that we've learned nothing from the pandemic. <laughs> Wickedness is at an all-time high. Climate control is all around us and people are still denying that it's real. 
Nothing has slowed us down. We fly wherever we want to fly. We ain't praying no more than we pray. We don't come to church no more than we used to. We're not reading the Bible no more. And we don't see no handwriting on the wall. Our days are just like the days of Noah. At the, when the Bible says, when the rains came, it wasn't until it rained on earth for the first time and God closed the door to the ark that the people said, maybe Noah wasn't crazy after all. And they tried to get into the ark, but, the, but God, God had shut the door. We are living in the times of Noah, and I want you to know what is blinding us is pride. We don't need God. We got this. We are depending on podcasts and TikTok and Google, our bucket list. God don't have no, he's not on the list. He's not a priority to us. That's pride. Our opinion and our thoughts are more important to us than the authority of God's word. I'm going to do a series on why I believe that's true. We don't fear God. We don't fear God. We do not fear God. The Bible said it is a dangerous thing, a, a dangerous thing or a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the angry God. We ought to be terrified when you look at what's happening around us. It ought to drive us to our knees. It ought to make us more hungry for winning people to Christ and prioritizing the call of God on our life. Time is winding up. And so pride is an attitude that says my opinion and my thoughts are superior to God's, the authority of God's word. How often do you refer to the scriptures when you make your decisions? How often do the scriptures impact what you do other than come to church? I want you to know that the Bible says that pride comes before the fall. God is against those who think that their opinion and thoughts are superior to the word. Let me just, let me run on. Pride is also displayed through our actions. It's their actions that display pride. That actions that promote self-interest and demands positive or negative recognition. So sometimes people are prideful and they have a terrible self-image. You try to get them up to, to, to just give their testimony or, or say their name. Oh, I ain't never going to them. And you think, they so no, that, that's a form of pride. Because you're so self-absorbed, so says so uh, your self-esteem is so low that you dare not allow anybody to see a hair that's not in place, uh, something maybe got some food in the teeth, or whatever it may, may be. But we sometimes pride will demand not only recognition positively but it will do things to get your attention, even if it's negative. Let me, let me run on. I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, so pride also is displayed through our actions that promote self-interest. Prideful people are hard to work with because they want too much credit. They don't always want all the credit, but they, want, they demand that they get some credit. And usually it's the most significant part of the credit. And prideful people want to be recognized. I think 
as we go into this example of God saying to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you. I will begin to make you great, which is an example of what the opposite of pride is that pride is self-made. Humility is what God cultivates and develops. King Saul is a perfect example of somebody who had an inferiority complex, poor self-image, low self-esteem. You remember when the Lord, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, the people were demanding, we want a king like all the other nations. And and finally God says to to the prophet Samuel, go and I want you to anoint uh, Saul, the son of Tish, and uh, you, here's how you're going to know that it's him. And so when, 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 when Saul comes to Samuel, Samuel says, God has chosen you to be the king. And then the first thing that Saul says, my tribe is the least. We're the worst. We're we the bottom of the barrel. There's no way that God could choose us. And really, they weren't worthy. None of us are, are we? But God selected Saul. And we might say, ooh, isn't he humble? Look how bad he talks about the sin. Look how quick, how hard he's working towards not being in the spotlight. And so he says, all of that, no, I'm not worth. And when his uncle finally finds him and he says, you've been looking for these donkeys for three days. Your dad is now looking for you. Uh, And Saul, the Bible says, he never mentioned to his uncle the most important thing that could ever happen to somebody's life. He was anointed as king, but he never said it. Oh, what a humble guy. I mean, if I was king, I would have been telling everybody. I've been showing that I, speak, I still have some remnants of the oil. And I said, look, this is the oil of the prophet Samuel. Never said a word. When it came time for Samuel to, to present Saul as Israel's first king, they couldn't find him. They couldn't find the guy. The Bible says he was hiding among the luggage. They had to go find the first king. And said, what a humble guy. I mean, he's so, so determined not to be looked up at and, and people ra- praising him and thinking he's more in the honor. That's, that's a humble. No, no, no. We see the real Saul after God performs a miracle through David. Uh, the, guy, the, the giant Goliath is slain. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Goliath is dead, and the women start singing, and they start dancing and playing their tambourines and thought, David has slain his 10,000s. David has slain his 10,000s. And I know they weren't twerping or nothing like that, but they were dancing and, and having a great time, and everybody's celebrating. Don't look at me like that. Amen. And so then, then the lady said, and Saul, and Saul has slain his thousands. Saul has slain himself. Now, everybody's just having a ball, rejoicing those who, 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 with those who rejoice. You know, when you're not prideful, you can rejoice when God blesses somebody else. But in the midst of the celebration, the Bible says that Saul copped an attitude. The Bible says he didn't like that they were giving David more attention. He didn't like that David was getting recognition for slaying ten thousands, and he only... A thousand, Saul hadn't slain anybody, and David only killed the giant. It was just a song. But when you, when, you, when you have a pride problem, you have to be the center of attention. You have to be recognized. And so while Saul hid to avoid being in public, because, again, pride can be inferiority complex or superiority complex, where you think you're better than other people. He had a pride problem that caused him to shrink back from what God had called him to be. And whenever pride is denied the center stage, 
it will rise up. It will rise up to even the score. And that's what Saul does. God hates pride. You're not going to help us do anything if you're self-centered. If you think about, well, how are you going to help work my vacation? How is it going to help me to get my student loan? And the same way God got you in the school, the same way you brought the 5th, 6th, and 15th pair of sneakers, the same way that you got every uh, device available known to mankind, just like God did that, just like God put, how many know that God put that roof over your head? God put those clothes on. You know, well, I put my clothes on. I got up. I matched all my stuff up. Okay, suppose God hit a lot of stroke to hit you. Or when you came coming out to the car switching, you know, I used to slip on a banana or something. No, no, no. God allows us to use the temple. How many know that the temple of the God, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Oh, I know I'm but one slip and fall away. Oh, God, I know that. Humility is hated by God. I mean, pride is hated by God. Humility doesn't do certain things. Getting to the passage now. He said, This day I will begin to make you great. Humility doesn't seek position. Joshua wasn't saying, Look, we're getting ready to have me to leave these people that Moses had trouble with for 40 years. You know what these people like? You're going to have to promote me. You're going to have to give me some extra stars or something. You're going to have to make me a little taller. The Bible says, in, 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 in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, he says, my, my servant Moses had died, Joshua. Now, arise, I'm sending you. Humility does not seek position. Humility does not seek prestige or power. Humility allows God to make one great. Joshua, this day I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to make you great. How many of you know when you get out of the way and allow God to use you the way he intends for him to be used, you're going to be a part of something. And you may not stand out, but if your part is not functioning within the body the way that it should, that absence, will stand, that absence of your gift will make you MIA, but it, that will stand out. But we're not doing the work to stand out. We're doing the work to be obedient. God says, I'm going to make you great. Humility does not seek power, privilege, or prestige. I'm going to do this, Joshua. Humility does do this. It allows God to elevate through authentication. Say elevate through authentication. Amen. God validates, proves, and verifies his call on our life. That's what humility does. I, I'm not going to try to prove where I went to school. Let me use a couple Greek words. Let me use some Hebrew words. Had a guy come here one time. He said, man, I can preach. I said, really? He said, you don't believe me? He said, let me try. He said, let you try. <laughs> no, I don't think so. That's not how it works. Another guy came and said, look, I've been ordained by four different denominations. I said, either they're confused or you lied. And I said, you will not preach from my pulpit again until I'm discipling you. He stood up, walked out of my office, and never came back. Turned out he was a charlatan. God protected the church from him. Humility allows God to elevate through authentication. God will validate you 
privately he will do it. He said, I'm going to show people this day as I am blowing you up. As I, I'm not waiting on Instagram. I'm not going to blow you up to, to, to do something that goes viral. I'm going to do this, Joshua, and the people will see it. I will make who you are to me known to them. You will be their shepherd, and they will hear your voice in the same way they heard Moses' voice. I'm going to make you great. I want you to understand when God wants you to do something together, it can't just be because the pastor's telling you. You better be praying about this. And then what God will do, he will direct your heart, and he will give you an assignment. He will give you a specific part of the responsibility. And here's why that's important. Before I can stand before you, I need to know privately that God has called me to this. There's no way I would be in the pastorate if God hadn't called me. I don't have time for this foolishness. I don't. But God called me. I can't just walk away because then the Paul said, I am compelled. I am obligated. I'm indebted. Woe to me if I don't preach. I would be miserable if I didn't. Is there anything about serving God that when you don't get a chance to do it, it makes you miserable? What makes you miserable? Well, I didn't get to work out today. I didn't get to eat my favorite food today. Oh, man, the Democrats aren't winning. The Republicans, oh, here he is. Now, what? Do you get upset when you can't serve God? In Galatians chapter 1, Verse 15 and 16, Paul says, before I was born, God set me apart in my mother's womb, and he called me to the gospel, and he said, I did not consult with flesh and blood. I needed to have this confirmed and authenticated by God privately. Have you been called? Do you know what your gifting is? What is your assignment? You need to get that right with God. When, when God called Joshua, he told him privately, arise, Joshua, and lead my people. Has, have you had a Joshua moment? Have you had, it ain't the kind of, I didn't go to seminary, and I, I don't know. All you got to do is get serious about God. Well, how do you know when you're serious? Because you start serving him where you are. Well, if I just knew what needs to be done, well, there's a lot. Well, do that, and then God will give you more revelation. There's no such thing as a Christian that isn't serving. If you're not serving, you will not grow. God has fixed this thing in such a way that we have to do it together. And so privately, God says, I am going to verify you, authenticate you, I'm going to make you great. Humility allows God to do it. God also does it in a peculiar or particular way. Say particular. Joshua, I'm going to make you the Moses over Israel. So what God is calling you to do does not necessarily translate to another church. It doesn't necessarily translate to another city. God, when he calls you, he has a particular assignment. 
So it says, your assignment, your authority, Joshua, will extend to the nation of Israel. And through the nation of Israel, the world will be touched. What particular area of ministry has God called? He ain't calling you to do everything. But he's called you to do something. Somebody say amen. amen. We have enough mature Christians in this church that every one of you should have at least somebody that you're disciple. We talk about making disciples that make disciples. Who's, who's doing that? Where is, where, where's that happening at? We love Jesus. We got enough prayer lines to pray everybody into heaven. Who's taking time to develop these young women and these young men who don't know how to be young women and men? That's not even in the sermon. I mean, but there's a particular assignment. God says, "My your gifts, I will use your gifts to make room for you. Somebody say amen. amen. He also, humility will allow God to publicly authenticate, to verify. He said, I'm going to manifest my presence through your ministry, Joshua, to all the people. What God does, when you are, when you are serving in the will of God, God will allow the gifts that you have to bless others. Miraculous things will happen when your hand is where it ought to be, when your, when your focus is where it ought to be. Miracles were wrought through Joshua as he obeyed God. Publicly, people saw that what God was doing in and through Joshua was nothing but the hand of God. When God calls a man to preach, something should happen when they open this Bible. Something should happen when I'm preaching and teaching to you. And if you're somewhere and nothing's happening and it's not, you're not finding the spirit of God at work in your life. First of all, you mean that you aren't saved or carnal because I know I'm preaching the word. Humility is needed. Humility is needed. Humility. Humility doesn't mean you sit in the back and shut up. You weren't quiet when you were at that Beyonce concert. Got three and four different levels of sun. Hey, I ain't telling you don't go. But when you come to church, don't get shy at church. Somebody say amen. amen. Working together not only requires humility, but it requires unity. The devil is a liar. I want you to know that the spirit of discord and division is in the church. And the devil will, the, the, the quickest way to destroy a church is through division. And so if, we, if, they, if they were going to cross the Jordan River, they had to do it as one. When they all crossed, when they all made it to the other side, when the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God stood in the middle of the Jordan, oh my God, just can you see them at the flood season doing what God had said on one accord? The miraculous was released. Somebody say amen. amen. Unity doesn't mean that we all dress alike, all think alike, all talk alike. It doesn't mean that you're stubborn, that it's my way or the highway. It, it, it means that there are going to be disagreements sometimes. But agreeing means that we come together 
for a common purpose, and that is to glorify God by accomplishing his will. That our focus is on him. And so the way the, the, way the children of Israel maintained a unity is by focusing on the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the center of the camp when they were resting. And the Ark of the Covenant is where the covenant, the gold, uh, 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 a gold container was, was, was set in the middle of the two seraphims. And it was covered with gold, gold and inside was the, was the covenant, that is, the commandments of God. And ultimately, the rod of Aaron and some showbread was up in there when God fed the people, the children of Israel. But most importantly, the presence of the, of the tabernacle, of the, of the ark in the midst of the people was an indication that God was in the center of everything. And when God wanted the people to move, the way they knew it was time to get up and start, start trucking was the Ark of the Covenant would go first. Biblical unity is needed for us to work together. Are we on one accord? Do we really believe that God has called us to Middletown? Do we believe that to get there is going to take a sacrifice? And sacrifice is hurt. Somebody say amen, Holy Spirit. Now, why does God, and this is really interesting, before the Ark of the Covenant was moved, God says, Joshua, pastor, go and tell the priests, the spiritual leaders. He starts with the spiritual leadership. You see, because if the spiritual leadership is not on one accord, church ain't going nowhere. We're just going to be marching around in the wilderness. And the second thing in terms of why did God start with the, the, the Joshua, with the spiritual leaders, is that the church will only follow where they're led. And so the Ark of the Covenant being born by the priests was an indication that the priests were following God. And Paul said it this way, follow me as long as I follow Jesus. Well, we say, I'm following Jesus. Well, if you're following Jesus, you're following your pastor. And when your pastor decides to go left, then you say, okay, pastor, love you, but we ain't following that. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, how can a leader be on one accord? We already talked about that. But when you get a chance, in Acts chapter uh, 2, the Bible said they were all on one accord. They were praying for, for 10 days when the Spirit of God came upon the church and the church was born. And they began to proclaim the good news. And the Bible says they met daily for discipleship, for worship, for fellowship, for stewardship. They met every need. Nobody had a lack in partnership. And they, so they gave. They were on, on one accord as it relates to the five purposes of the church. The church exists for worship, for fellowship, for discipleship, for stewardship, for partnership. And partnership is simply Jesus says he left us here to complete what he finished, and that is to save souls. So when I'm leading others to Christ, I'm in partnership with Jesus. And guess what happens when the church is one on court, one accord? The Bible says, in signs and wonders and miracles were being brought amongst the people, and the Lord gave them favor. Not only with those who were in the church, but he gave them favor even with unbelievers. There must be unity 
There must be unity. Are you on one accord with the vision? When you are, God says, we all must do our individual part. Let me, let me run on. There must also working together requires a strategy. Say strategy. strategy. A, a, a strategy is simply a plan of action to accomplish an objective. There has to be a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're planning to do what? That's right. So God gave Joshua a plan. He gave him a strategy. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come and hear and hear the word of the Lord, our God. That's in verse 9. But what's interesting is every plan that is from God will be based on the word of God. And so the strategy that Joshua had was a biblical plan. And so one of the ways that you'll know if the pastor has lost his marble is, is this plan that he's telling us to follow, is it biblical? He told us to use our credit card and max it out. Find that in the Bible for me. He said he went to Texas and he brought back some oil, some, some oil and ordained shrimp. And if I take these oil, oil and ordained shrimp, God's going to bless me tenfold. Find that one in the Bible. What God ordains, he will confirm in the word. We follow foolishness. We go to churches and we pay. We we will we will we'll, we won't we'll keep, give our rent money every year. We let the pastor prophesy over us and tell us what he going to, what God is going to do, and it never happens. If it does, make the devil is a lie. Tell me, tell me if it did. If it did, God bless you. Keep on giving to that pastor. But all I know is that if a prophet lies one time, he's not a prophet of God. I'm talking about biblical the gift of biblical prophecy. We'll go across the country. We're sending people all kinds of sermons about how to name it and claim it. And you're sitting under sound teaching. Life has changed. You're growing in God and won't give a dime to Christ. Oh, 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 let me, let me go on. Hey, hallelujah. A biblical strategy must follow God's word and his way. The Bible says to the priest, he says, God's way is, this is how the miracle of getting to the other side of the Jordan. This is how the bridge is going, the gap is going to be bridged. He says, you're going to lift up this ark, and you're going to go to the Jordan River during the, during, during the flooding season. The lowest point of the Jordan is 50 feet deep, but you're going to go. <laughs> and here's what's going to happen. He says, all I want you to do is let your feet, your feet, just the little bit of faith, the faith, the size of a let your feet touch the Jordan. But if your feet don't touch the Jordan, it ain't going to, God, the miracle won't happen. If that little boy with two fish and five loaves said, this is my lunch. I know the 5,000 hungry, but my mama gave me this lunch for me. If the men who was at, laying at the, at, the, at, the, at the gate of Salome for 38 years, when, when, when Jesus said, do you want to walk? If he hadn't gotten up, he would have still been there laying. I love the story of Lazarus. He was in the tomb for four days. 
But if Mary hadn't taken Jesus where Lazarus had been laying, he would have still been dead. Somebody say amen. Give me some more of that fan, brother. Then when they got him to the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus could have simply said, get up. But he said, move the stone. If they hadn't moved the stone. And so the strategy of God includes his way. You got to do. You got to do your part. The strategy of God also includes his will. He said that they may know and that you will know before you lift an arm to fight that there is a God in Israel. And so the purpose of all of this, this test that God is taking us through right now, is so that we will give God the glory. And we know even before we get to Middletown, we got the victory because of what God has already done in Wilmington. Somebody say amen. amen. By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out those from before you. And then he gives the entire list. We need a strategy. We got that. But a part of that strategy includes you. It includes you. Here's the final thing. Working together not only includes humility, it not only includes a strategy and unity, it includes community. Say community. In verses 14 through 17, the Bible says, So when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and all those who bore the Ark to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped to the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows, etc. So community is us. It's the family of God. It's New Direction Church. It's doing what I ask you to do. God told the, the Israelites before they got on their journey to ask the Egyptians for faith, for blessings. Ask people you know to help us. And they did, and God says that he gave Israel favor. Amen? And so community means that they all joined together. They heard the strategy of God. They humbly came under submission of the leadership. And the, and the, and the, and the leaders, the spiritual leaders, did what the Lord said. Now watch this. Stand with me. How many of you want a new miracle in your life? I'm glad that God parted the Red Sea for the children of Israel. But he didn't part the Jordan. Mm -mm, mm -mm. That's not how they went through. God didn't tell anybody to put their toe on the bank of the Jordan. He didn't do it that way. Now, they might have said, well, when Moses and them passed through the Red Sea, all Moses had to do is raise up his, uh, raise up his rod, and they did it. Now, why can't we? No, 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 no. You want a new miracle? We got to do it a new way. We got to do it in ways that you have never done before. 
You got to be willing to sacrifice in ways that you haven't been able to sacrifice. What do you mean going to the Jordan? That's like going to the Niagara River and putting your foot in. I ain't getting close to the Niagara River. And here's what God says. When the priests do their part, I'm going to do two things. He said, I'm going to dam up one entrance to the, to the Jordan. I'm going to just shut it down. I'm going to become a supernatural dam. No water is going to be able to pass through. I'm, 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 the Holy Spirit's going to stop all the water. And he said, on the other side, I'm going to cause all of the water to rise up as a supernatural heap. Just imagine all the water just rising up into the air. He said, I'm going to cause the water to defy gravity. Water's not supposed to just go up and not come down. And so until all two million of them pass through, on dry land, God caused the water to defy gravity. He did it in a different way. He gave them their own testimony. When you obey God by stepping out in faith, he will give you your own. Your own testimony. He will do it in a way that you know it was him. He will pay bills that you know you shouldn't have been able to pay. He will heal diseases that only he could heal. He will raise that which has died from the dead. When community works together in unity, in humility, and according to God's strategy, let us pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we can do this together. 